uh, I think uh, I'm wrapping up the four parts. So today's part four of a four-part series that I've been kind of walking through, taking a look at who Jesus is again. Like in Sunday school, you know, uh, Jesus is always the answer, right, to every question. What's long, uh, what's short and has a long, you know, fuzzy tail and eats nuts? Well, it's Jesus. Sounds like a squirrel. It's just crazy, the goofy Jesus is the answer stuff. But I think we've almost been polarized in the church, you know, saying, yeah, Jesus is the answer. To what? Don't oversimplify Jesus when there is such a great mystery to be understood. So I've been revisiting some of those foundations and reminding us of what they are. And some of them have been quite surprising. Today is one of my favorites. Um, So I tell you, it's, uh, (laughs) yeah, I, I think you'll like it. All right, a couple more comments before we get rolling here. Uh, sure, Elizabeth Eby says, The Sunday I'm not there, Terrell Megan sang. <laughs> Thank you, and she loved it. And Sandy in the UK says it's like 1527. And then uh, Jen, good morning as well. So let's dig into the one, the word, the revealer. Who is Jesus really? And it's not as simple as we think, and yet it's as simple as we think and simpler. So hopefully the last couple of weeks have made sense. Um, I want to read this for you because this is a really cool quote. Um, He who has the kingdom of God within himself will imperceptibly pass it on to others. People will be attracted by the peace and warmth in us. They will want to be near us, and the atmosphere of heaven will gradually pass on to them. It's not even necessary to speak to people about this. The atmosphere of heaven will radiate from us even when we keep silence or talk about ordinary things. Ooh. This has to do with uh, um, being the love of Christ instead of thinking we have to tell everybody. I remember growing up in a German Baptist church, and they had a program called Evangelism Explosion. Some of you might remember that which is a door-to-door ministry of trying to win people to Christ, which is a hilarious term now, the more I think about it, because how can you really win people to Christ? Really? Uh, secondly, we had a bus ministry, and we had a bus ministry that would go to poor neighborhoods, pick up kids, and bring them to church. And uh, yeah, it was like my mom was on that committee of knocking on doors, and it was, yeah. But here, we see something even more important. Instead of trying to bring them to a place to try and tell them about something, and then yet they may see The lack of love in other relationships, how about we be love and loving in our own personal relationships and have that connection where we work, where we play, and so on in our neighborhoods. Just be a good person. People will know the difference. That's what this is all about. So the last couple of weeks, these, are, these two verses have been kind of kingpin. Acts 17, 28, for in him, Jesus, we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. This is referring to Paul talking on Mars Hill and kind of alluding to, well, strongly alluding to, we are all children of God, everyone. Colossians 1, 17, this has to do with the objective truth. He is a before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is in Christ. There is no separation. There is an objective, actual reality of everything being held together by Christ. So in that sense, there isn't a separation. Because I grew up, when we did that evangelism explosion thing in the bus ministry, we handed out little tracts that started with the first piece of good news. 
you're separated from God and you have sinned. Remember that one? Isn't that great news? That's a great way to start a conversation. You're a sinner. Woo, thank you. Oh, my goodness. Listen, if we ask more questions about some of the things we've believed, even though the intention was good, I think there's a way to expand, not to knock-knock it, but to call out what is incorrect and find a better way, a more hope-filled way to communicate this. I grew up with it. I'm not bashing it. I'm saying most of it was wrong in its premise because that's what we saw. We were taught to believe us versus them. In Sunday school, we're taught, at least where I grew up, you know, don't play with those people because they're not believers. you got to only marry believers, and the list goes on of separation and dualism. How many remember that vaguely? Yes. Think about it for a minute. Does it actually make sense? Huh. Might be a good idea. I don't know, but I think it creates division, not unity. So, this idea of all of us connected, even unbelievers, believers, everyone is held together by Christ. So, that is an objective truth that has radically changed my thinking and how I see God. In fact, I'll tell you clearly, my perspective of who God is, is getting bigger and bigger, wider and further. But it's also making me love people better and better and better. And I'm seeing more and more people included. And the ones I thought weren't included, oh my goodness, they're included too. Them too? Yep, them too. What about those? Yep, them too. Oh my goodness. Wait a minute. Where does, the, where does it stop? Oh, it doesn't. It's your comfort level that stops it. Do you hear that? Not, not Jesus' love. What do we know? God loves us all. Who can agree? God loves us all. Yep. What we don't know is how big that love really is. We just cannot understand it. So if you hear someone say, no, God does not love them, they've just boxed God up. They're trying to tell us that there's an understandability of God's love, which it's not understandable fully in its full capacity. Do we see in part? Yes, but not in completeness. So the dogmatism has got to go. Teachability, openness, that has to be the front, forefront. We talked about God being light, and one of my favorite illustrations is that light shines through darkness. Even though the darkness doesn't perceive that it's there, it's still there. So this is a really awesome quote. I've read this a few times over the years, but I still love it. This is from T.F. Torrance. The constancy of physical light is a reflection of the constancy of God. His nature and the way he relates to his children. Just like physical light, God, in his pure love, is always moving towards you in total purity and goodness of intention to embrace you intimately and personally. This is about the light shining through the darkness. He does this regardless of your direction of travel, regardless of your attitude towards him, or regardless of your moral performance. Huh. God's love is as constant, unerring, and warming as the rays of the sun. There's no shadow or turning in all of God's nature and character, including his wrath and judgment. It must be understood from the basis of the primary truth that he is love and he is light. Let's back that up again. Even God's wrath and judgment must be understood on the basis of God is love and light. 
If you don't have that perspective or lens on it, you're going to skew what wrath means. Every time. His wrath and anger is only ever directed towards those things that harm his beloved children and his creation. Not towards his children or his creation themselves. He, sorry, his light, he himself, shines on all constantly and unceasingly, regardless of their attitude towards him. God's very being radiates constant, unchanging, unrelenting, pure love and warmth. This is the God I believe in. This is the God Jesus revealed. Remember, Jesus came to reveal the Father because they had gotten it wrong throughout the entire Old Testament. Absolutely, they got it wrong, incomplete. And Jesus said, ah, I've come to reveal. <laughs> you start with me. And that really ticked off the religious leaders and kind of headed them on the road to get killed. Yep, it's a pretty bold statement. 1 John 2. So, how do we understand this? Can we understand it all at once? No, we can't. Hello, Joshua. Yay, Joshua Robinson's watching. 1 John, this is talking about the different stages of growth. And this is going to lead me to my wonderful, fun epiphany from another story. But here we see three stages of growth. And I've talked about this before, but just a quick summary. Uh, this is the only place in Scripture where I see a maturing journey of a child, young adult, adult. It says, I'm waiting for you who are God's children because your sins have been forgiven. I'm writing to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I'm writing to you who are young in the faith. So we have children, mature, young in the faith. Because you have won your battle with the evil one. I've written to you who are God's children because you know the Father. I've written to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. That's a repeat. And I have written to you who are young in the faith because you are strong and God's word lives in your hearts. So uh, it looks like the last line's missing from there. So I don't know if it's my projector or, or what's not making it up there. But that's okay. Um, the point here is there are stages of growth. And I'll tell you, the ones who are at different the upper levels, uh, it's not about arriving. It's about less and less judgment. So when you become a young adult, wrestling with all the kinds of things, behaviors, disciplines, relationships, your understanding of who God is, you're, you're not going to get it all, but you're also going to understand that as a child you saw things differently. And so it's like, ah, so the children that you see growing... You're, you're not going to judge them as, oh, come on, grow up. You're going to instead say, ah, I've been there. I get this, so let me help you and bring you along. Same thing with the mature ones, the adults. They have the greatest love for all. There's less and less judgment downward. And yet, in the church world, man, we're good at judging. And it ain't good fruit. So this to me was really powerful. So there's different stages. You know, why am I bringing that up? Because there's the child, young man, father of 1 John. But we're going to talk about Peter's journey today. It's going to go pretty quick. I don't know how long or how this will work. But in Peter's journey, he, he's, he's an unbeliever under the law, a Jew. Remember that? Then he's called and he meets Jesus, learns something of grace, thinks he's got it. <laughs> really thinks he's got it. In fact, he gets in trouble with Paul a couple times, or at least once for sure. But then he finds more grace. And today's story is about more grace. And man, I hope you catch this more grace today. I, I too, have come from a legalistic background, still understood love, 
Okay? Just, just because I grew up in legalism and still unlearning little bits of legalism as I grow, none of us arrive. But I moved to an identity revelation of who am I in Christ. Learned about the new covenant. Learned about, you know, power of indwelling sin or flesh and all that stuff. And you know, it was good stages of growth. And I thought I knew it all. I thought, okay, I've arrived. Woohoo! And then got humbled again and realized, oh, there's so much more. And when I had, um, I watched a video series from Bruce Walkup called What is the Gospel? It's on my YouTube channel. When I saw the one episode, I wept. Honestly. I, in fact, it was at the at Camp Koinonia at Family Camp when I was the speaker there. And uh, I was uh, hiding out in my little cabin. <laughs> and I watched this clip and I wept and wept because I saw a greater grace I could not understand. It was like opening a curtain to a universe and going, oh my goodness, how am I going to explain this? That's where I'm at. The more I know, the less I know. The more I learn, the less I really know. The things I'm certain of, I'm less certain of except Jesus and becoming less dogmatic. And I think that's a good thing. There's more mystery connected. And by the way, mystery and, and facts, they're not inconsistent with each other. There's, there's mystery in some facts. We can't understand the love of God like that. Peter thinks he gets grace until this. We have a story in uh, uh, Acts chapter 10. And uh, this is a, a picture of, a, 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 it's called the house of Simon the Tanner. Okay, what is a tanner? Anybody know what a tanner is? Pardon? Leather workman, which means you deal with what? Dead animals. Oh, that's a problem for Jews. Why? They're not allowed to be near dead animals. Because if they're in connection, the law says they are now unclean and they have to get cleansed and all that weird stuff. So Peter has been picking and cherry picking ways to connect with the Gentiles and he's trying to almost make them become Jews in a way, and that gets cleaned up and cleared up pretty quick. But now he's staying at a tanner's house, which is like, what are you doing? So he's kind of playing a little bit of freedom, thinks he's, thinks he's got grace. Look, I'm at a tanner's house. See, uh, I got grace now. I'm, at a, I'm with a dead animal place where typically it's unclean, but, you know, that's, that's grace until this happens. Acts chapter 10. In Caesarea, there lived a Roman army officer, this is farther away from where Peter is right now, named Cornelius, who was a captain of the Italian regiment. See, the Italians are in the Bible. Look at that. Yeah. He was a devout, God-fearing man. That's important to remember. As was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly to God. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming towards him. Cornelius, the angel said. Cornelius startled, stared at him in terror. Ah, what is it, sir? He asked the angel. And the angel replied, Ah, your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now, send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying with Simon, a tanner, who lives near the seashore. So, pause for a moment. There's something powerful going on here. Is Cornelius a Christian or a believer? 
No, he's not. But that's the, that's the answer we think. Why do we think that? Why would we think he's a believer? Well, because he prays to God. He must be a believer. Well, he's a believer in God, but what about Jesus? He doesn't know about Jesus yet. He has some understanding, but it's gonna be, he's on the journey of being dragged into more grace. <laughs> the author of grace. It's not just Peter who's going to learn a lesson here. Cornelius is learning a lesson too. But here's a man who an angel came and said, your prayers have been heard. What was he doing? He was a devout, God-fearing man. He gave generously to the poor and prayed regularly. So some of us in the awakening world or trying to go deeper, questioning prayer, questioning things we need to do, guess what? There's enough evidence in the New Testament to say, hey, the evidence of Christ being in you is going to be generosity. It is going to be caring for the poor. It is going to be seeing the needs of others. That's how Jesus works. There's no getting around it. So quit looking for the excuses not to and only take care of yourself. I thought that was a pretty powerful thing. So that's, there's another vision coming. So Peter is hungry one day, and he goes to his roof uh, on the tanner's place. And he was hungry and fell into a trance. Now, I don't know if he was that hungry that he fell into the trance, but I think God kind of put him in the trance. You know, you're kind of go, I'm hungry, uh, hamburgers. No, I don't think that's happened. I think this was a God moment that happened to him. The vision of animals was being lowered to him. So this, this image came of a whole blanket full of animals, reptiles, and unclean animals were all being lowered down to Peter. And, and God said, take, kill, and eat. Okay? I'm giving you a huge meal. You're hungry. Why not? And here's what he does. Not a chance. Peter refused. I love this. No, Lord. How many of us say no, Lord? Honestly. <laughs> I'm sure there are times we say no, Lord. We're not ready. And I believe this is a good lesson in the gentleness of God teaching us some profound truths. We can say, no, no, I don't want to believe this. No, I don't want to learn this. No, no, nope, 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 nope. And yet, God will take your no and be gentle with it, absorb it, and awaken you to a revelation you need to learn. We are stubborn people, okay? We're no different than Israel. He says, no, Lord, Peter declared, I have never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure and unclean, and yet he's in a tanner's house. Seriously. He'll, he won't do the food, but he'll hang out with somebody who's around unclean animals. Kind of make up your mind, dude. So, do not, and then, um, but the voice spoke again. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. This is a really important line. Well, Peter refuses two more times. Can you believe that? Not just no, Lord. It's no, Lord. No, Lord. No. God doesn't uh, take no for an answer. <laughs> just warning you. The visitors arrived to collect Peter, and they stayed for the night, and they took off the next morning. They arrived in Caesarea the following day, and Cornelius was waiting for them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the home, Cornelius fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter pulled him up and said, Stand up! I'm a human just like you. Ooh. Okay. There's a sense of humility here, right? 
Interesting. Well, I think there's also a story of um, Ananias and Sapphira. Remember that one where they both dropped dead because they kind of held back money and lied about it or something like that? Remember that story? That's not, that's not the theme for today, but his reaction is different than back then. Or I, I, think, I think it's a little, late, a little later. But his reaction is different. Here he says, don't bow down to me. And later on, he kind of judges them. And it's like, wait a minute, what's happening here? So anyway, Peter's on the journey of growing and learning, okay? It, the scriptures record for us what is shared and what is remembered, okay? Then Peter replied, okay, so now he's talking, he's bringing the gospel to Cornelius. And here's what he says. I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. Right there, that's a big one. Because last week we talked about God shows no favoritism, no division between slave, non-slave, male, or female, on, 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 on. There are no favorites with God. And he sees this now. Something happened from the vision to when he shows up here. Might have, he may have had it at the aha right then and there. I'm not sure. But he had a whole trip to ponder this. He says, God shows no favoritism. In every nation, uh, in every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. This is the message of God's good news. Oh, sorry, of the good news for the people of Israel. That there is peace with God through Jesus Christ who is Lord of all. Lord of who? Jesus, Lord of all. We kind of covered all last week pretty strongly. That was, it was fun. But here, he's saying God shows no favoritism. And now, here's the, here's the beauty. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Hmm. That's a pretty strong statement. And if you're like me, reading these things in Sunday school or, you know, in Bible college when you have to read, read stuff because they tell you to read it, you don't read it to, to absorb it. You read it to get it done, to get the mark, okay? There's, there's a big difference. I want you to absorb this line. When I was forced to stop and read it slowly, and every word slowly, this hit me. We're not to call any person common or unclean. Those are two different things. In Acts 10, uh, verse, the New Living Translation says, but God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. The anyone's a big one. New American Standard Bible says, and yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. Young's literal translation says, but to me God did shew to call no man common or unclean. And same thing in the King James Version. This is a big lesson. How often do we judge others according to some moral standard or a religious standard? Especially Christians, we've done that. Well, if they're not a Christian, then they're less than us, or they're not quite going to heaven yet, or we're better than them. We're going to make it. We're in. They're not. Ha ha. You know, like if you hear that ridiculousness, that's what we have done. That's the system we have built and fed. And Jesus was opposed to that system of religion, instead, brought in a kingdom of grace. And the kingdom of grace doesn't judge. And Peter got a wake up call. So did Cornelius. 
See, Cornelius, being part of an Italian regiment, would have already known how the Jews were so awful in their judgments of anyone that was non-Jew. Okay? So now you have somebody who's like tired of all that and has to be an authority figure, and now you have Peter who walked with Jesus, and they clash, and they both learn a powerful lesson. And suddenly Peter sees for the first time, oh, it's not just for the Jew first per se, but it's for all. What? This love is for all? Man, I guess I've been judging this wrong. Yeah. And we have too in many ways. And each of you can find your own way where you've misjudged. I sure have. And I repent a lot. Repenting just means to change your mind, to do a 180 change direction of what you, what you had seen. And I've done a 180 on this, and I realize that all humanity is loved by God. We are not to call another person unclean, unholy. Those are two separate terms. Christ died for all humanity. This is from T.F. Torrance again. He's, really, he's deep, sometimes really hard to understand, but this is powerful. We must affirm resolutely that Christ died for all humanity. That is a fact that cannot be undone. All men and women were represented by Christ in life and death, in his advocacy and substitution in their place. That is a finished work and not a mere possibility. How many times have we told people, you can be saved, you can find hope and love, you can't, God can change you. Hang on, no, 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 no. Something has already happened, objectively. It's an accomplished reality, for in Christ, in the incarnation, and in his death on the cross, God has once and for all poured himself out in love for all mankind, has taken the cause of all mankind, therefore, upon himself. And that love has once and for all been enacted in the substitutionary work on the cross and has become fact. Nothing, uh, uh, it's a fact, nothing can undo it. That's a big deal especially if you think you've got salvation figured out. And if you've got it figured out how far the love of God reaches, this just kind of blows it out of the water. It's still hard for me to comprehend because I've been so ingrained in a us versus them. I've been so ingrained in this is the step to the arrival of what, what I thought was salvation when salvation is much more than that. Do any study of systematic theology, and you're, you're going to find there are multiple views that have had an impact They are worth visiting and let the Holy Spirit confirm and teach you. Not the school you're going to, not your pastor. Let the Holy Spirit teach you what this can say and mean to you. We may or may not arrive at the same conclusions. Imagine that. What a diverse body. Ha! 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Have you ever stopped to read certain words? <laughs> it's amazing how we gloss over some words. I kind of am highlighting some of them because those are the ones that bounced out at me. They may not bounce out to you the same way, but here they are. New Living Translation says, We have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. 
did beget us again to a living hope through the rising again of Jesus Christ out of the dead. The Young's literal translation is a literal translation. Okay, just the most literal. It's hard to read, but man, sometimes it's, it's blunt. But something has happened. There's, there's a causation of the actual born again having happened, but that does not mean belief has entered in. There's still a response required, not for it to be finished, but for you to awaken to it and benefit from the experience. 1 Peter 1.3 in the Passion Translation says, we are reborn to experience a living, energetic hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I'm not going to read the Greek stuff. But this is an ex- but experiencing. Jesus has done the work for all humanity, but by believing it, because you're going to find a ton of places in Scripture where it says, believe, believe, believe. So if you're hearing me say, well, if Christ has done it all, what's, we don't have to believe. That's not all. You made that up. I didn't say that at all. There is belief. This is how you benefit. And the belief comes by faith. Oh, Faith, right. Huh, we'll get to that in just a second. For what if some did not believe? See, you're not the first one to ask that question. (laughs) This is 2,000 years old. Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid it. Yea, let God be true and every man a liar. Do you hear that? What if you don't believe? Does that change what God has done? No. Galatians 2.20, this is the most blunt one. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Stop there for a minute. This line is improperly translated. By faith in the Son of God. That word by faith in the Son of the in the, take that out. And, because right now it's, it's up to you, right? This, this, this is wording is designed to put the burden on you, your performance, your faith, as if you came up with faith, as if you muster up faith, as if you originated with faith and and can grow it. Instead, the original languages say it like this. I live, in fact, King James Bible got it right. I live by the faith of the Son of God. You don't live by your own faith. You live by the faith given to you. Any faith you have has been a gift. The ability to believe, that's Jesus allowing you and awakening you to believe. Not some fancy evangelism explosion tool or whatever evangelism program. I'm not anti those things. It's just, it doesn't feel my wheel, fit in my wheelhouse anymore. I'd rather love people that are right in front of me now, wherever I am, instead of a program. I didn't see any programs in the scriptures. The early church didn't have programs. They were love and grace as they walked, worked, and lived. Hmm. But here, Young's literal says, I live by Son of God faith. Can you hear the difference? Do you see the difference between my faith, I live by faith in the Son of God, or I live by the faith of the Son of God? You've heard it here before, but the reminder is stark because the source of that faith is critical. What do we do when we don't understand? Three suggestions. And what I mean by understand, I mean, what do we do if we don't understand all this theology stuff and the definitions of, these, of this terminology and this growing in great? What if we don't quite get all this stuff that's 
This is a great piece of advice. Number one, Acts 5. But one member, a Pharisee named, this is, they're trying to deal with the early church, okay? And like, they can't handle it. They want to take out the Christians. But one member, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, who was an expert in religious law and respected by all the people, stood up and ordered that the men be sent outside the council chamber for a while because they had them in for a court. Then he said to his colleagues, men of Israel, take care of what you're planning to do to these men. Some time ago, there was a fellow, Theodos, who pretended to be someone great. About 400 others joined him, but he was killed, and all of his followers went their various ways. The whole movement, I can't read the rest. After him, at the time of the census, there was a, oh, that's another one. So the whole, the whole point was, there was a group of people, their, their, their system's going to die if it's not of God. If it's of God, it will, it will work. Uh, um, is this, does this go on? I think it does. Yes. After him, at the time of the census, there was Judas of Galilee. He got people to follow him. But he was killed too, and all of his followers were scattered. So my advice is, leave these men alone. Let them go. If they are planning to do, planning, oh sorry, if they are planning and doing these things merely on their own, it will soon be overthrown. But if it is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even find yourselves fighting against God. The others accepted his advice. They called in the apostles, had them flogged, so they beat them up anyway. That was that for justice. And they ordered them to never again speak in the name of Jesus. <laughs> As if. Oh my goodness. So that's number one. If there's something scary... If you see people pendulum swinging in their journey, let them. That's a hard one to do, especially when you think you see them going down the wrong path of thinking and believing. Take your hands off. Who's got them? Who has really got them? Jesus. Jesus is in charge of their revelation and their faith. Not you, not me. We only have our little bubble of what we see. And it's a tiny bubble. There's so many more bubbles we can learn from. So be careful. Number two, second thing to do. Peter turned around and saw behind them the disciple Jesus loved. The one who had leaned over to Jesus during supper and asked, Lord, who will betray you? Peter asked Jesus. What about him, Lord? Jesus replied, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? As for you, follow me. Ooh. <laughs> that was an interesting chastise. What was Peter doing? Looking at someone else. His eyes were on the waves again. Didn't you learn the first time, Peter, you walked on water? Come on, that was like pretty cool. No other disciple can call that one out. But here you already say, hey, who, who? Who's going to do this? And he's looking around to help judge, to know. Maybe it's about Peter wanting to have that one up more knowledge than the rest. Know anybody else like that in their church? <laughs> Ouch. I'm looking in the mirror. <laughs> I recognize it. Takes one to know one. We do want to know more than others. And that causes division. That includes this COVID stuff that's going on. 
And all those that are saying, I know more than you do. Well, just shut up. Just be quiet. That means your eyes are on COVID, your eyes are on rules, your eyes are on news, and not on Jesus. Learn from Peter. Quit looking at everyone else, and you focus on Christ alone. This is a great lesson. And then he tells Peter, you follow me. And that's the message to us all. Jesus is saying, get your eyes off everyone else on their journey of faith or what they're doing, their actions. Get your eyes off that church that's driving you nuts, off that group or that business, that political thing. Get your eyes off all that and follow me. What about the problems here or there? What about people even in my own family? Get your eyes off of them and put it on me. That's a hard thing to do. But man, it was blunt. One last one. This one's beautiful. I know I'm going a few minutes over, sorry. Then Jesus taught them another parable. Heaven's kingdom can be compared to a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But when everyone was asleep, an enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat and ran away. When the wheat sprouted and bore grain, the weeds also appeared. So the farmer's hired hands came to him and said, Sir, wasn't that good seed that you sowed in the field? Where did all these weeds come from? He answered, Ha, this has to be the work of an enemy. And they replied, Do you want us to go and gather up all the weeds? No, he said. If you pull out the weeds, you might uproot the wheat at the same time. Let them both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I'll tell my harvesters to gather the weeds first and tie them in all in bundles to be burned. Then they will harvest the wheat and put it into my barn. Did you catch it? What if so-and-so believes differently? What if they're really going off? The deep end. What if their pendulum is really swung way out? i got to correct them because we have to stand up and be ready to give an answer anytime someone asks. Stop that control freakness. Get your eyes on Jesus. Let things grow. Let Jesus take care of who grows and how they grow. And what happens? You're not really good at taking care of that stuff anyway. He doesn't need your help. He doesn't need my help. And man, we want to jump in and help. I try to help God out all the time. I pray for something, and I figure out how he's going to answer, and I go help him figure it out. (laughs) It doesn't work like that. So, like Peter was encouraged, get your eyes off of John and the others. Get your eyes off of the people who are hurting you. Get your eyes off of key problems that are consuming your mind and focus them on Jesus. It doesn't mean the problems aren't there. It just means you're focusing your attention on the one who can sort these things out because you have no clue how to do it. And neither do I. And you'd be shocked at the peace that can come in little spurts. This to me is the gospel, Christ in you. The hope of glory. And I vote for hope today. I do. Not despair, not fear, Hope. Do we know how things are going to turn out? No, but I sure hope so. And that's okay. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, each person here and each person watching, they got their own stuff they're dealing with. Some of it's quite dark. 
So Lord, will you please speak into their soul ever so gently, even though they may say, no, Lord, three times or ten times or a hundred times, you'll never give up on them. Father, for those of us listening, may we stay or become more teachable so that your grace will permeate our hearts, make us more loving as we receive your love and believe we truly are loved. Thank you, Father. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Next week, don't forget, register, pre-register. And it uh, looks like everybody that usually forgets to pre-register registered in advance. That's amazing. Hats off to you, that one individual. But anyway, move on. And then we have our donation, so keep, keep going. That wasn't you. That was somebody else. Um, um, don't forget your donations online, Hope Fellowship. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it takes money to keep things going. And we're just inviting you to participate. We don't have a legalistic law that says you must tithe. Um, that, that's not in the scriptures. But... This is our community, and we invite you to participate financially in this. And uh, if you call this home, support it. Uh, and then movie night. Don't forget to register for that coming up on Friday night. So I don't know. When, is there a deadline? Jen's not here. That's okay. But just make sure you register in advance. Try and do it the night before at the latest. I think that's it. So Brian Abel, good morning to you. Uh, Grace-filled morning to you all, he writes. So I'm glad all of you that are watching online chimed in. I hope this was encouraging. I hope the last four weeks have these, of this topic has kind of hit home of a really core foundation. Next week we begin with Advent and Christmas theme and how do you teach it a new way? Ugh. So <laughs> it's, it's going to be fun. So let's see how the next couple of weeks go. But uh, let's find hope in these next four weeks, not despair. All right, take your eyes off of all the stuff that's distracting you and bring in a depressed thinking and look at life and hope and look at the light that's shining in you. It is shining in you whether you believe it or not. So look for it. And if you look for it, you'll see it. Thank you. 